Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. We are very, very, very excited today because we have a fantastic subject for you guys. We have with us Anna Jameson, who is an associate tutor at Birkbeck University College London, working on women's mental illness in the 18th and 19th centuries. And she has just handed in her PhD. Well done. Thank you. Congratulations. It's finally over. Finally over. Exactly. Just coming up rare now. So what are Um, you going to do afterwards? um, Well, now that you've handed it in. Um, I've just got funding for a six month project um, titled Coping in Confinement, which looks at female experience in the English private madhouse. And it's kind of based on some of my work that I looked at in my thesis, but it's amazingly relevant in terms of what we're going through at the moment, in terms of how we're coping. Um, So I'm really excited to start that in January. I was I was about to say that that is perfect you know women in confinement we're all stuck at well not most of us are stuck at home you know yeah <laughs> I was actually it sort of looks at different coping strategies like different female communities and writing and shopping which is probably the topic I'm most excited about exploring um because I've seen so much of that over the last well six months or however long it's been um so yeah that's my next project so really. in 30 years time you're going to have to come back to what's happened now and compare with what you've written. That's a very good, absolutely. (laughs) That's a good point. Right. Anyway, so what we are, we're here to talk about madness. We're here to talk about women. So let's, let's set the scene. First of all, let's talk about women in the 18th century and the early 19th century. What problems were they facing at this time? Okay, well, I think the first thing to say is that a woman's problems was massively impacted by her class, her social standing, her age, her race, whether she was married, all of these kind of factors. Um, But generally speaking, women in this period walked a pretty precarious tightrope and they had to tread really carefully. There was a lot of social pressures, expectations, ideals surrounding good behaviour and femininity. Um, In terms of scholarship on this period, different strands have painted the challenges they face differently. So while some have argued that women are expected to be very modest, stay home, domesticated and dominated by the men in their lives, um, more recent scholarship has shown that actually life for 18th and 19th century women was more complex. And women could be powerful, they could be authoritative figures, and they could find agency in their roles as mothers, wives, business owners. And they might take on political roles too, but these roles had to be really carefully negotiated and carefully managed. And at the same time, this was the era of sensibility. 
So the 18th century was when it became really fashionable to quite simply express emotion. So things like crying in public, trembling, sighing, blushing, these all became markers of one's sentimental behaviour. And they showed that a person was refined because they were so moved by their external sensorial surroundings. And for men, the language of sensibility was usually seen as very positive, very civilising. The focus on physical and emotional response was sometimes seen as too much for women to cope with. And they were often seen as on the brink of a mental collapse and understood as not really being able to handle this emotional expressiveness, partly because their bodies were culturally and biologically conceived as far weaker. Um, So there were many, many complexities and contradictions that govern women's lives during this period. And the ones that I just picked on here, I think, are the ones most relevant to my research on madness yeah madness I'm quite I'm interested in what you're going to have to say for us so as we're on the subject can you define madness for us in the late 18th century and early 19th century and does it actually differ for men and women okay so unsurprisingly madness is it people really struggled to define it in the 18th century um The cause of madness was very much debated. It was discussed at length across medical texts. So there wasn't necessarily a clear definition, but it has often been understood as living in two main camps. One was mania. So a raving, raging, often more violent form of madness. And the other was melancholy, which was the more depressed, listless, lethargic kind of disorder. Um, These were actually more interconnected than we might think. And melancholy was often understood as a precursor to full-blown mania. But before the 18th century and my period, madness was often seen as something linked to demonic possession, religion, more bestial forms of behaviour. And the mad were often lumped in with with society's deviants, criminals and beggars. Um, We also have Foucault's model of the ship of fools, and that pictures the medieval madman as a sort of unthreatening, wandering fool who was never going to be cured, but could kind of be left to his own devices. And aside from superstition or religious ideas, um, the main way that madness and its cause has been explained is by a humoral theory. So this was first suggested in classical antiquity. It was widely accepted throughout the 18th and into the 19th century, actually. Um, And it was the belief that illnesses could be explained via the imbalance of the four humours. And these were blood, collar, phlegm and black bile. And it was believed that too much black or yellow bile would cause madness. Um, so this was one model. And whilst I said it was it was kind of tinkering away, people did believe some doctors, some asylums, records of asylums um, discuss humoral theory in the 18th century. But really, a new model became really popular during this period that explained mental disorder by the irritation of your nerves and your nervous system. So the body was conceived as being made up of lots of stringy fibres, which were all interconnected and linked up to the brain. And the belief was that your outward surroundings and the sometimes stressful um, experience of that life and culture threw at you sensorially could irritate your nerves and drive you mad. And nervousness actually became quite fashionable. It was linked to sensibility and being affected by your surroundings, being too emotional. So with these developments, the 18th century is actually seen as the moment when the mad became more humanised. 
Um, it This happened during the time of a wider humanitarian movement. So attitudes towards madness were changing and a more sympathetic response was increasingly encouraged. Now, there's a lot going on here. At the same time, this impacted the way the mad was treated. And we have the moral therapy movement across institutions, which saw new types of asylums develop, which had more experimental ways to look after their patients. So this was part of a belief that the mad could be nursed back to health and nursed back to rationality. And suggested treatments included the close interaction between patients and staff, occupational therapy, and more sort of holistic um, modes of treatment. So that, broadly speaking, is you know answering your question about how madness was defined in lots of different ways, and there are lots of different changes at this period. And thinking onto your second point about women, um, as mentioned earlier on women were seen as more susceptible to mental illness than men during this period because, because of this new conception where mad, about where madness came from, um, coming from the nerves or nerves theory, nerve theory. Um, and these developments really impacted how female mental health was conceptualised because this new medical lexicon position of female body is very fragile, is having a weaker nervous system to the man. Um, and this was actually intensified by women's unpredictable and unruly reproductive organs. Now, the figures don't actually tend to show this, but it was widely considered that more women were being institutionalised than men during this period. And really important to my research is the cultural arm of this belief, which is known as the feminization of madness. And this saw a roster of women driven mad by love being extremely popular across various cultural spectacles and stages. You just mentioned love's madness. Let's talk about that, because how does that all fall into this whole narrative? So the archetypal Love Mad story sees a beautiful, submissive young girl. She's often from the countryside. She's often very innocent, lower status. And she meets a really dashing, beguiling male suitor who she might engage in some form of debauchery with. And she's promised a ring in the future. And then he abandons her. Sometimes he goes off to war and dies. um, But often he's painted as tricking her out of her innocence. And she's then driven mad by heartache, disappointed love, but also feelings of shame for her behaviour out of wedlock. She's often cast from the family or she might choose to leave. And she then spends her days warning other women um, to you know, not make the same mistake that she did and listen to her tale. So this type of story became extremely popular in the late 18th century as part of this feminization of madness narrative. And if you were a man or woman living in late 18th century London, the likelihood is you would have met a love mad woman in many ways. You might have heard songs about a crazy Jane sung in the street or in an elite performance space. Um, You might have gone to see crazy Jane, the ballet or the opera. You might see a portrait of Maria, who was a melancholic, um, very sentimental damsel um, from Lawrence Stern's novel, The Sentimental Journey from 1768. And she was exhibited several times in paintings in the Royal Academy. Um, You might also buy a piece of Wedgwood china, which bore her visage, um, or you may even wear a piece of jewellery, which showed her. And I could keep going. You could see a character called Crazy Jane. um, No, sorry, this is Crazy Kate. 
um, in a recital or a print of her in a print shop window. Um, during these years, Hamlet's Ophelia became extremely popular and there were a num- number of stage productions of her. Um, so part of why this trend was so popular was the way it connected with sensibility because Love Mad Women, despite being around for a while, they've been around since the Renaissance with Ophelia, um, really connected with the emotional dynamics of sensibility and the sentimental landscape of her period of the period rather, and it saw her resonate anew with 18th century audiences. This was in part because of her own emotional sensitivity. She was the kind of perfect um, emotional icon who represented fashionable values of interiority and fine feeling and an emotional expressiveness, Um, but also because she was really well-placed to prompt the pity and emotions of the beholder. And, you know, if you came across a love mad woman, you were then able to demonstrate your own sentimentality um, through the sympathy and emotion you showed for interacting with her. But I believe that love's madness actually conjured up a much more kind of complex emotional cocktail than just pity or just sympathy. And I think part of this is because love's madness was not just a literary archetype. It was viewed as a genuine medical category in its own right, a genuine pathological condition. And it was discussed in medical commentary of the time and sometimes described as erotomania, which I think is a really amazing word, actually. Um, And in my research, I've looked at this idea and thought about the more frightening, threatening, transgressive and more kind of mysterious elements of love's madness, given that it was conceived as a very real threat. Because, I mean, ultimately, anybody, no matter who you were, you could fall in love. And cultural commentators of the time um, made a really big deal about the fact that the halls of Bedlam, which was London's leading asylum, not necessarily the biggest asylum, but it certainly loomed largest in the popular imagination. Um, It was said that Beth Bedlam was full of love-mad women wandering its galleries. And I think that was really scary for people during the time to hear. Was there such a thing as a crazy Bob or a crazy Frank? There was (laughs) not, it's a good question. There was Tomo Bedlam. But that is a more, I think, a 17th century figure. There was not, there was not a similar um, male mad figure by any means. There were the mostly in the 17th century, there are a couple of male icons of madness, but they didn't have the same backstory. Um, thinking of Bedlam, actually, there were two um, very well-known sculptures, one of melancholy, one of mania, that sat sort of atop of Bedlam or Bethlehem's gates. Um, they were produced by the sculptor Caius Gabriel Sibber in the late 17th century. And so they were the kind of main male icons of madness. But no, there was not a crazy Bob or a crazy Frank. I just love how it's there's there's one rule for men and one rule for women. Yeah. It's you know, women can be absolutely crazy for love, but if a man has the same situation, you know, it... there were there were account men were described as going mad, but they just didn't have the same cultural, um, the same cultural role or cultural figure. And I think that's really interesting because if a woman, I, I'm really interested in the way that these stereotypes and tropes impacted actual experiences of women with mental health issues during the period. And it must have been, you know, having all these cultural icons around to kind of match your own experiences to um, is something I'm still thinking about. But I think that's a really, it's an interesting connection that men didn't have in the same way. So tell me, is love madness real 
or is it completely made up by the Georgians and Victorians? Um, I I think that's a really hard question to answer, um, and I'm not quite sure. But certainly, in asylum records, there are there are descriptions of women who have who have had quite serious mental breakdowns because of a scenario linked to love. I'm not sure you'd call it a broken heart, but I, I mean, maybe it was. I think there was everyone had very subjective, different experiences like we have with mental illness and mental health now. And I think that um, under a kind of broad umbrella, love's madness isn't, is definitely not the right term, but I think that um, there is some truth, I think, in the trope, is my opinion. We've We've all had a broken heart, haven't we? We have, we have. Oh, except for the young people that are listening. You know, if you haven't had a broken heart, just wait for it. It will come. Exactly. Um, right. Okay. So we are going to talk a little bit about asylums now because it's something we all want to talk about. We all want to know more. So Bethlehem used to be an open asylum, but they closed mm. it to the public. Why did that happen? So Bethlehem was first Bethlehem. It was sort of a monastery and then it turned um into Bethlehem and it's often known as Bedlam. Um, before thinking about why visiting ended, I actually just wanted to quickly talk about why it started in the first place because when I tell people about my research, this is always something that people are really interested in. It is fascinating. Um, so for many years Bethlehem was London's largest as- asylum and it did function as a tourist site. Um, visiting was actively encouraged by the governors so that the hospital could exploit public curiosity towards the mad to raise money. And whilst visits were hoped to inspire really big and generous donations from wealthy benefactors who would sort of wander through Bethlehem and come away and think, you know, I want to give a really generous donation to the asylum and the good work they're doing. um, Governors also instructed casual visitors that could come on a kind of almost daily basis at one point to drop a few coins in the poor box, either when they were arriving or when they were leaving. And historians have been quite reluctant to conclude that the reason people visited was just for spectacle, that Bethlehem only functioned like a zoo or a freak show, and that the visit was particularly, you know, seen as a, just a day out, like going to the Tower of London or going to Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens or kind of other tourist attractions during the period. Um, There were, of course, other reasons for visiting. One was to see an incarcerated relative. Um, There would have definitely been philanthropic, I think, or charitable reasons. And I think some were seeking a morally instructive experience, Um, just like the reason that many of us go to more difficult or dark tourist sites today. And I'm really actually interested in the parallels between asylums and various modern sites and museums that we go to. Historian, there's one historian called Jonathan Andrews who writes a lot on um, the phenomena of visiting. And he suggests that a visit to the hospital was a really a moral duty and it was particularly thought provoking and pertinent for those who were prone to mental health issues themselves. But he too rather reluctantly admits that for many it was the lure of this entertaining day out and he calls it the frisson of the freak show, um, which was a key motivation for many. And then thinking about why it ended, um, it ended in 1770. And this is often understood as in line with the story I laid out earlier about changing attitudes to madness. Um, It was seen as too cruel um, to continue. And Andrews has a good line where he says that as sensibility grew more refined, the fun went out of seeing the insane. 
Um, throughout the 18th century, there was mounting criticism. It was viewed as a really inhuman practice, but it wasn't just as straightforward as it never is, um, as just this one reason. There were loads of other factors. There were reports of really nasty, disorderly and lewd behaviour um, by visitors in the asylum, um, reports of attempts to get patients drunk. So from actually the beginning of the 18th century, um, visiting was curbed. The hours were limited and then there were no visits on Sundays and public holidays. So it wasn't really an immediate change that kind of happened all of a sudden in 1770. It was a gradual evolution. And in terms of Bethlehem's status as a sort of charitable um, institution, increasingly Bethlehem didn't need visitors in the same way it did in terms of funds. It was becoming increasingly self-sufficient by the end of the 18th century. Um, So lots of different reasons why it ended. And um, yeah, the debates are still raging. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I still can't imagine what it would have been like on both sides. First of all, the stupidity of people's curiosity. I mean, mm-hmm. as you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, the dark side of, of, of tourism, you know, I get it, but I also don't get it at the same time. And then what would it feel like to be that person, you know, stuck in that place and being oogled mm-hmm. by loads of people? There's, a, there's, there's some really interesting source material about this, about coming from mostly letters and manuscripts, quite a lot of survived and diary entries, telling of experiences. And actually, quite often, there's descriptions of patients really wanting to tell their story to visitors. And actually, visitors were seen as like disrupting the patients because in terms of their kind of recovery, which I've always found quite interesting, Um, At the same time, different commentators in kind of moral philosophy would also talk about the importance of sympathy and that you should let um, the, you know, the kind of whoever you're encountering, whether it be the mad or the sick, um, 
tell their story to you and that you should give them lots of time. So I find it quite interesting that these spaces, asylums of the period um, that allowed visiting, often had asylum visitor books. And these are fascinating documents, mostly um, through by the kind of beginning of the 19th century as the institutions were developing and more controversy was taking was happening over poor conditions um inspectors um kind of centrally employed inspectors would be sent to these spaces and they'd write their um their sort of report in the visitor books but at the same time these books were also used by philanthropic tourists and this is kind of after Bethlehem closed its doors to the public and to casual visitation they still allowed um sort of invited guests philanthropists or elite and educated individuals they'd write about their experiences pretty pithy responses slightly frustratingly for me but um they'd often talk about how long they spent in the asylum which I think is really interesting kind of the longer the better um it's just yeah they're, they're really fascinating sources actually the visitor books so what would you see in such an asylum because I'm assuming not very good things so these spaces, I'm really interested actually in the way that these spaces functioned almost like curated experiences with things being shown, things not being shown. And there was definitely a visitor route at Bethlehem, which was in line with its public persona as the 18th century went on, that it was a kind of more charitable institution. So thinking of Bethlehem, let's start there. In the 18th century, visitors would enter Bethlehem through its side door, but they would have just walked past these two sculptures that I mentioned, the melancholy and the manic um, man, um, men rather. Um, They would have passed them. They wouldn't have gone through the main gates. This was just reserved for royalty. They would have gone round the side into a smaller door. And there they would have met these two really fascinating um, objects. They are two life-size arms boxes in the shape of a man and a woman. You can still see these. They're actually in Welcome Library's reading room. And I like to work there sometimes in the pre, pre-corona days. And people often just kind of walk past, not really noticing what they are, but they're life-size. They're arms boxes. And they have a sort of tablet between them that says, Remember the Poor Lunatics. Um, interestingly the woman is half naked the man is not and they both hold um kind of uh little little what would you call them they're both holding containers <laughs> where um you can put a few coins in um so they're really amazing and unusual objects made in the 17th century but I'm really fascinated by the fact that as you arrive at Bethlehem they are the first thing that greets you so you kind of have the frisson of seeing this half naked woman, even though she's a sculpture. Um, but they're also reminding you, you know, you're here to give us some money and to do a good deed. I find so that then, is a bit creepy. It is quite creepy and they are quite creepy. Um, yeah, take a look at them if you can, because they're really quite startling. And I can imagine them being quite scary. I don't know how well lit this corridor would have been. You might even suddenly think that actually, I think people would have been slightly scared. So you may think you've already sort of come face to face um, with one of the patients. But actually, that happens a little later. You would walk along the long corridor, you would go up the big staircase, um, and then you'd come to the galleries. Now, Bethlehem was an incredibly impressive building. Um, It was often 
um, contrasted with the Palace of Versailles. And it was really one of like London's architectural showstoppers. And its galleries, there was one for women and one for men. They were like the long, large um, galleries that you come across in country houses. Um, And at Bethlehem, originally, there were grills that separated the gallery from the stairwell. But by the 18th century, in the period I look at, these were removed. So there was this really impressive kind of endless effect. When you arrived, you could look down each gallery. Um, They're sometimes known as wards, kind of linking to contemporary um, or modern hospitals. Um, But it's here that the visitors would meet patients. So this may be done in a number of ways. Along the back of the gallery's wall were cells and patients could be viewed here through little wickets in each door. So you can imagine visitors could kind of peer through and have a look. Um, The layered nature of these spaces meant that as well as these cells, you would also meet or you would also come across doors which were shut. And so you you wouldn't see um, the maniacs or the lunatics that were kind of hidden away here, but you might hear them. And you would also meet people wandering around the galleries who would come and chat to you. Um, and there were also people who were chained within the galleries, which within contemporary reports of visiting, I think people probably find the chained patients most distressing, actually. Do we know what they were chained for? They were usually... They were usually chained because they were particularly violent. Um, That was the main reason um, to restrain them. And over the course of the late 80s, with the moral therapy movement, chains were used less and straight clothing, straight jackets, straight waistcoats were increasingly used. I've also found some sources that say that the chains were actually reassuring because to come across someone who was restrained was kind of less terrifying as coming across someone um, who was free. Um, so there were lots of different perspectives and interpretations on this. I'm assuming it wasn't uh, pleasurable for the person that was chained. No, it must have been, you know, absolutely terrible. Really okay. Did um, did any other asylums allow visitors? Because I know there, there were quite a few at the time. Yeah, they they did. And across the 18th century, more new asylums sprung up. So there were kind of three main spaces that looked after the mentally ill during this period. There were places like Bethlehem, um, which was a subscription hospital, which meant it was funded by donations or annual subscriptions. It's often also known as a voluntary hospital. And another um, institution like this called St Luke's Hospital for Lunatics opened in 1751. And St. Luke's allowed visitation, although it stated technically that it didn't. So it said that it believed visiting was far too cruel. And it declared, I've got the quote here, that the patients in the hospital be not exposed to public view. So whilst it didn't allow visiting in the sort of um, casual way that Bethlehem had for years, it did allow certain types of visitors, philanthropists, people like Elizabeth Fry, um, Dickens visited in 1855 so you did have sort of people coming through and then as well as these voluntary hospitals you had state-funded hospitals starting to emerge um, by the 19th century so both of these types allowed visitors the sort of county asylums um, all sorts of different documents like diaries and letters and the asylum visitor books I mentioned um, show visiting continued but these weren't really sort of humming hives of tourist activity um, like Bethlehem is sometimes presented. Um, it's more kind of a steady flow of 
royalty and aristocrats and gentry and a lot of kind of medical men coming from overseas and wanting to see the good work that the English philanthropic asylum circuit was up to during this period. Although it wasn't always good work, but that's often how asylums tried to present themselves. I mean, there's a third one, isn't there? They're private asylums. Mm, Yeah, and that links to what I said at the beginning, kind of where my research is kind of heading. So private asylums... Um, visitors would have come to those, but that was really to, to either to inspect or to visit relatives. Um, so private asylums, um, unlike their voluntary and then the state funded um, counterparts, they catered predominantly for the middle and upper classes. And this was because fees were involved. Um, private madhouses are, are really, really fascinating sites. They were very ad hoc. They were very rarely purpose built. They were haphazardly run and they often sort of spilled into the households of their proprietors. Um, The way that they worked is that often they were sort of entrepreneurial offshoots um, by perhaps doctors who worked at larger public asylums. They'd start their own madhouse Um, or they would be the kind of doctor. They would go and visit a a private madhouse regularly. Um, fees varied widely from madhouse to madhouse, and this depended on the accommodation, the care, and any additional provisions that were made available. Personally, for me, one of the most fascinating things is that I have often, um, previ- like in my work, I've often thought that the sort of bigger hospitals like St. Luke's um, had the most patients, but actually some of the private madhouses had close to, say, 400 patients, um, there was madhouses in Hackney in particular in Hoxton in the late 18th century that had close to 400, but some had 10 or 12 patients. Um, So they're very, very interesting in terms of their scope and scale. Um, And something else I find interesting is that they very read, they really varied in terms of the treatment that they afforded the patients. So some of them were seen as really experimental, um, innovative, um, trying new types of treatment and curing patients with really high standards of comfort and care. And as the century in the 19th century progresses, you get some really interesting kind of advertisements in periodicals for asylums and you might have, sorry, for private madhouses and you might have access to outdoor space and really pleasant rooms with sort of lovely plush furnishings. But then some of these private um, madhouses were, you know, really really badly run places particularly the ones with many many um patients and they kind of developed um a cultural stereotype that these were terrible spaces of deprivation with starving patients and um who weren't sort of given any clothes and were absolutely freezing and there's some really horrific accounts of treatment and conditions in these um circulating particularly at the beginning of the 19th century I didn't know there were um, asylum. Well, there was an asylum in Hackney in Hoxton specifically, only because I, I grew up in the area. But was that one of the bad ones? Or yeah, it was known as being one of the bad ones. And there's one. I think it was in Hackney. It's known as the White House. And um, again, that was seen as a really terrifying, um, a terrifying space. And um, various sort of reports and government committees took place in the kind of 18, 1814, 1815 to solve some of the abuses of these these um, spaces because they were seen as, whereas some of the asylums in England were seen as being like really, you know, 
in, like I said, these innovative spaces, not just the madhouses, also asylums, these madhouses um, were seen as kind of doing detriment to that good reputation. Not surprised because that part of Hackney was quite poor for a long time. Mm. So anyway, let's move on to some people because you actually study um, a couple of very interesting women. Thank you. So <laughs> let's start with the first one, uh, who's Margaret Nicholson. Tell us a bit about her. So Margaret Nicholson... I think really illustrates how madness could be hugely commercialized and become a kind of source of commodity and entertainment. So what happened was that in August of 1786, um, on just sort of like an ordinary day, um, the king was at St. James's Palace, this was King George III, and um, Margaret Nicholson joined a sort of crowd that was waiting for the king to come and he was coming to say a quick hello and getting out of his coach as he was walking into the palace and met the crowd were all petitioning the king, which meant they were giving him a petition with their sort of current political concerns. And Margaret Nicholson stepped forward with a petition in one hand, but suddenly showed a very small dessert knife in the other hand and allegedly went to stab the king. And the story goes that the king shouted to the crowd and to his guards who sort of sprung forward to stop Nicholson in her morbid act. Um, Do not hurt the poor creature. You know, please, she is insane. Look after her. Something along those lines. And what happened was an absolute cultural explosion. The whole of um, Britain kind of stood in its tracks, stopped in its tracks and became absolutely obsessed with this cultural event. Um, she was portrayed as a waxwork. She was portrayed on a pillbox. There's a wooden frieze that depicts her on a pew in St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Many prints of her, lots of satirical ones lampooning her and her behaviour um, were shared. And everyone was completely obsessed with this event. And the reason for this, I discuss in one of my PhD chapters. There are many different reasons. Um, the Nicholson affair is particularly interesting because... She believed, and I think that she did display sort of various delusions, um, she believed that she was the rightful heir to the throne and her petition that she was trying to give to the king, as well as sort of trying to hurt him or at least make some kind of um, um, some kind of public demonstration of her criticism of the monarchy. Um, she was trying to um, live out what she believed was her rightful place in society. She was showing the king um, that she, um, sorry, I'm getting a little bit lost now. Let me start that bit again. I think one of the most interesting things about Margaret Nicholson is the fact that her madness stemmed from the deluded belief um, that she believed she was the rightful heir to the throne. So her petition that she was giving the king um, sort of went into detail and it still actually exists, which is amazing. It lives in New York Public Library. Um, it detailed that she believed that, yeah, she was the rightful heir to the throne um, and that if the king didn't agree with her demands, um, then the quote is something like blood, the blood of a thousand years would come down on him. So there was a real class issue at play here because Nicholson had the audacity to believe she was above her station. And while some people were initially a little bit sympathetic towards her, um, quite quickly, those sympathetic portrayals broke down and she was um, she was sort of mocked. She was shown as this crazed and subversive spinster um, and really a kind of freakish entity. Um, so I, one of the reasons I'm most interested in Nicholson is because I think 
interest in her wasn't so much about her madness, but really because she subverted ideals around class and around gender. I actually feel sorry for her. Yeah, she'd had a really hard life. She had been a a servant. So yeah, that's another thing. Sorry, I should have said that earlier. She was of lower class and um, she had moved from family to family and sort of staff to staff. And sometimes it was reported that she left because she was proud and other times um, that just something had gone wrong and she didn't have her family. She was originally from Yorkshire, so she didn't have her family close by. And then the most important thing to say is that after a few weeks when people were deciding um, you know, what was wrong with her and what was going to happen to her. She was incarcerated in Bethlehem and she spent the rest of her life there until her death in 1828, um, where she she, com- she continued to be a figure of kind of intrigue. People would go to Bethlehem and visit her in her cell. Um, but she was, um, yeah, it was a sad story. So what about the second woman? Louisa. Tell us about her. Louisa, lady of the haystack. So, Louisa is another very interesting case and one which blends ideas about class. Um, So in 1781, a newspaper reported that a wandering maniac had been found in a village close to Bristol. And it said that she wandered all day on her own. And at night, she took up her lodging under an old haystack. Um, And this woman became known as Louisa, Lady of the Haystack. Now, this newspaper report was written by Hannah Moore, who at that point was a really well-known female philanthropist. And she kind of took up the case of um, Louisa. And after her, her piece was published in the 1780s, like Margaret Nicholson, there was this flurry of material that shared all sorts of speculations about who this woman was. And writers kind of scrambled to provide readers with a backstory of Louise's appearance. And it was believed that she had come from the continent. And there was lots of discussion about her breeding because she appeared to be very upper class. Um, she had a peculiar accent and she didn't speak very much. And the story went that she was actually the illegitimate daughter of Francis I and the half-sister of Mary Antoinette um, because she had some sort of identical scar to her. So, yeah, it's um, it's it was a very complicated story, but it was framed within the parameters um, of the kind of solitary, wandering, love-mad woman, even though there wasn't any evidence that Louisa had been kind of shirked by um, by a man back on the continent. Um, but I'm interested in Louisa because she has this very clear romantic appeal. She was very frugal. She wanted nothing apart from her haystack. And she was innocent and wasn't vain. But she was always described as being extremely beautiful. So she's kind of this living embodiment of the melancholic and harmless love mad woman. Um, it's also interesting because... Moore and Hannah Moore ended up paying for her to go and stay in a private madhouse. But once she was incarcerated, she massively deteriorated. She became really ill. And there were accounts of a few people who went to see her. And their first account described as sort of beautiful and sweet Louisa. And then a few years later, they return. And it is a, I think it is a few years. And she's in a really, really bad way. And during this time, public interest completely wanes. People aren't interested in her anymore. And... For me, she really connects the idea of 
sympathy and beauty so to be a sort of sympathetic sentimental icon you had to be beautiful and you couldn't be too crazy and actually there's a really illuminating quote from Hannah Moore where Hannah Moore admits um, somewhat reluctantly that she thinks that it was her looks Louise's looks that had attracted to her plight in the first place Um, so another really sad story you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if it was her looks because, you know, certain beautiful women were, were you know, condemned just because they were beautiful. Definitely. And Definitely. It's, it's kind of, anyway, moving on swiftly because I could probably rant about this. Your third choice. Tell us about her. So thirdly is Crazy Jane. And I'm interested in Crazy Jane because she treads this interesting line between fact and fiction. So Jane comes from a poem from 1796 by Matthew Lewis, who wrote The Monk, which was sort of one of the main Gothic novels of the 1790s. And in his poem about Jane, he describes a real episode and in periodicals and newspapers, it was always described as actually happening, um, where he met a woman called Jane whilst walking on an estate, um, the Duke of Argyll's estate in Scotland. And the story went that Lewis and his female companion had been wandering one evening and they'd stumbled across this poor mad woman. Um, The poem's four stanzas long and it explains the story of the love mad and crazy Jane um, asking the female companion of Lewis to stop and heed her warning and listen to her tale. And she is this kind of classic archetype, the local country girl who's been driven mad by a broken heart um, and has been abandoned by her suitor. So by all accounts, this was a fictionalized story, but it's often presented as real. And I think, again, this kind of plays with the idea of the kind of close threat of love's madness that this could happen to anyone but Jane um is also fascinating because her cultural interest in her kind of continues into the gothic period and with um Matthew Lewis being a gothic writer um she can be understood within the gothic tradition and this for me means that she kind of gets a gothic makeover so she is really popular across um there's the first poem about her in 1796, but then all sorts of other poems are published and there's a ballad produced about her. And the poems kind of become more gothic in tone. So there's the death of Crazy Jane and the ghost of Crazy Jane. And by 1813, a chat book is published um, by a female writer called Sarah Wilkinson, who is also seen as a gothic writer. And this really plays around with some of the gothic features of Jane's story. And we see her as kind of become a gothic heroine. We're described the kind of sleepless night she goes through tossing and turning as she's waiting for Henry to come back and he never does. And there's sort of stories of her or vignettes of her wandering through moonlit spooky groves. And so this is for me a really good example of um, Love's Madness becoming more transgressive and raising questions about sexual behaviour. Um, I think that the idea of sexuality in Love's Madness is really interesting and it's not one I have properly unpicked, but I would like to. So kind of it's a question of are women, where is sex in the story of Love's Madness? Are women going mad because of sexual frustration or is it linked to negative emotion to do with sex? Um, And I think the Crazy Jane story out of all the Love Mad characters kind of brings some of those ideas to the fore most clearly. 
Anna, thank you so much for joining us. That was absolutely incredible. We're really, really looking forward to when you publish your book on the subject because I would, oh, thank you. I would love to read more on this because, you know, t- talking about these visitors coming into Bethlehem, um, sorry, Bedlam as we want to call it, and mm-hmm. these innocent women who are just being labelled as crazy when they're probably just a little bit heartbroken at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, there are so many examples of wrongful confinement during this period. Um, also, lots of cultural examples. Um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, there are some really, as I've shared, some really terrible stories. There are also some more um, kind of uplifting stories buried deep in the archives, which I would also like to eventually share too, to kind of temper some of the terrible experiences. But um, no, I definitely think that finding out these stories, the more I find some of them are, yeah, very, very upsetting. Anna, before you go, can you tell us a bit about your book? Thank you. Yeah, there are as I've been sharing today, all sorts of interconnected stories which relate to some really big themes about class and gender, um, which are also relating to kind of experience of mental illness and mental health today. So yeah, I look forward to sharing more of my research with you too. Definitely, you will be back on for sure. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Elena and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life is going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.